welcome back to The Killer Kind. It's been a while because of the holidays, so I hope you're all doing well. If this is the first time you're hearing this podcast, I hope you would subscribe and leave a nice review when it's over. That really helps other people find the show, and it just makes me happy. (laughs) And before we get started, I want to let everyone know that we are coming up on the one-year anniversary of The Killer Kind podcast. It's honestly so hard to believe. I've got a little information about the one-year anniversary at the end of the episode, so be sure to stay tuned for that. But now, let's talk about today's case. So, we've got a big one here today. This was originally just a disappearance case, although everyone pretty much believed foul play was involved. And it was also a cold case for nearly 25 years. I won't give much away in case you don't know anything about it. So, With that being said, let's just go ahead and dive into the disappearance of Kristen Smart. Kristen Denise Smart was born on February 20th, 1977 in Augsburg, Germany. When she was young, Kristen and her family moved to Stockton, California. Her family consisting of her parents, Denise and Stan Smart, as well as her younger brother and younger sister. As a teenager, Kristen would keep summer jobs as a lifeguard and camp counselor at Camp Mokalaia in Hawaii. Needless to say, she was smart and seemed to be very independent and driven on her own. Her family and friends said Kristen had a smile that could light up a room, and she loved adventure. Later, investigators found that she ended her email messages with, quote, live your life to be an exclamation rather than an explanation. She loved trying new things, anything new and exciting, she was up for it. Although she was known as the family planner, so she liked to have some structure in her life. On June 8, 1995, Kristen Smart graduated from Lincoln High School and enrolled at California Polytechnic State University in San Luis Obispo, California, better known now as Cal Poly. This was about a four-hour drive from her home in Stockton. And from what I could tell, she was struggling with college at first. Her mom said she called her every week, and she just didn't seem to love it, but she said she was trying. So, An important thing to note here is that Kristen was extremely close to her family. Although she was off to college, she maintained a close relationship with her parents and siblings. They said she would pretty much call every day or every other day just to check in and say hi. Now, our case today really starts on Memorial Day weekend, 1996. On Friday, February 24th, 1996, Kristen and a few girlfriends leave campus on foot at around 8.30 p.m. Now, before we get into the rest of the night, I want to point out Kristen's appearance. Not that it holds much significance here. I just want to throw this in so you can really picture Kristen Smart for yourself. So Kristen was a white female. She had dark blonde hair about shoulder length or so. She weighed about 145 pounds and she was six foot one inches tall. She really stood out in a crowd. And on this particular night, she was wearing a gray cropped t-shirt, black athletic shorts, and red Puma sneakers. So now that you kind of got the idea of what she looks like in your head, let's get into the evening. So soon after, they get a ride from another friend. 
After driving around for a while, Kristen suggested a birthday party being thrown by some fraternity brothers at a nearby fraternity house. However, the friends she was with already did not want to go. So they end up dropping Kristen off at an off-campus frat house on Crandall Way. Her friend Margarita Campos told the San Luis Obispo Telegram Tribune in 1997, quote, I can still see her standing there after we dropped her off. A little mad, I think, that I wouldn't go with her. She said someone who wasn't as independent as Kristen wouldn't have gone to a party alone. She kept saying, quote, you go with me, but I didn't want to go. And I told her, you better be careful. And she said she'd be fine. Then she said bye. And at that point, according to the friends she was with, including Margarita, none of them, including Kristen, had been drinking. And from what I can tell, the party was going great after Kristen got there. Everyone was drinking, dancing, having a good time. That was until around 1.30 a.m. when three students at the party find Kristen passed out in the front yard of the home next door to the party. Now, prior to this, witnesses told authorities that Kristen seemed intoxicated when she left the party, with one person claiming they saw her drinking tequila, while police were also told she was seen chugging vodka. Still, other people at the party said that they never saw her with a drink. Now, this is a party at a frat house, okay? Alcohol's flowing, everybody's drinking, you're not going to be able to get a clear answer from witnesses like this, okay? I believe Kristen was drinking and maybe had a lot to drink in a short amount of time, or she could have been drugged. That has not been determined, obviously, but we can't rule that out. I've heard that rumor, though, while researching this case. But going back to when Kristen was found passed out in the front yard of the neighbor's home. So at this time, the party is winding down. So three students, Cheryl Anderson, Tim Davis and Paul Flores decide to help Kristen up and get her back to her dorm, which is only about a mile or so walk. So the four of them start walking down Crandall Way towards campus where the various dorm buildings are located. Tim was the first person to park from the group when they get to Perimeter Road, which is about a quarter of a mile into their mile-long track. This was supposedly where he parked his car for the party, and since he lived off campus, he didn't need to make the trip the rest of the way with the group. Then Cheryl splits off as well when they get to Perimeter and Grand, because at this point, in order to get to Kristen's dorm, the group would have to continue going straight up Perimeter Road, but Cheryl's dorm was down Grand Avenue. I just want to kind of put this into perspective for you guys, so stay with me. Now, Cheryl would later claim that she argued a little bit with Paul Flores, saying that she would walk Kristen the rest of the way to her dorm. But she said that he insisted on walking her by himself, pretty much. Cheryl also told police that on the entire walk, Paul was the main one holding on to Kristen. She said every now and then Kristen would need to stop and take a break and kind of regain her strength or stability and continue walking. And every time this happened, Paul would tell Cheryl that she could go on without them. But she never did that. That was until she got to the street where her dorm was. And so, for whatever reason, Cheryl allows Paul to finish walking Kristen home. I'm not sure why she allowed this, since she definitely had her reservations during the walk and found him to be very odd and suspicious during the walk. But I get 
maybe she just didn't want to read too much into it and it was late and she was ready to get home as well. So I'm sure she didn't think anything would happen. So with that said, that leaves Kristen alone with Paul Flores. He told the others that he would walk Kristen the rest of the way because Paul's dorm is pretty much right next to Kristen's. So it made sense for him to walk with her the rest of the way. It's not like it was out of the way or anything like that. Now, some reports say that originally the other two students found Kristen lying in the yard. And as they were helping her up, Paul Flores steps in and offers to help as well. That's neither here nor there. I'm just throwing that in there. (laughs) Now, Paul would later tell police that he walked Kristen as far as his dorm, the Santa Lucia Hall, and then allowed her to walk the rest of the way to Mira Hall, where her dorm was located, by herself. And that was the last known sighting of Kristen Denise Smart at around 2 a.m. on May 25th, 1996. So a couple things. Kristen did have a roommate. However, her roommate was out of town for the holiday weekend. Although her roommate later reported that there was no sign of Kristen being in that dorm after leaving with friends that Friday night. Now, most of the students were away that weekend for the holiday. And just like Kristen's roommate... The roommate of Paul Flores was also away that weekend. So that being said, Paul Flores is the only one that's able to say what could have happened to Kristen in those early morning hours. And there's really no one else to corroborate his story. So on top of her roommate not being there that weekend, Kristen's friend Margarita Campos said on CBS News 48 Hours that when she dropped Kristen off, she didn't have any money, ID, or her keys. So, Margarita gave her key to her dorm to let herself in later. She said, quote, I was expecting her to knock on the door and be like, oh, Margarita, you missed a rager. (laughs) And then one other thing I want to mention that may have no relevance whatsoever, but just something again that I want to throw in and give you a little more insight as to who Kristen was. I saw her dad and one of her friends quoted as saying she was very independent and a free spirit of sorts. And That being said, Kristen sometimes went by different names. During searches of Kristen's email to friends, she sometimes signed it with different names, one of those being Roxy. And on this particular night of the party, she had told some people that her name was Roxy. Again, here nor there, just kind of giving you an idea of who Kristen was. Now, Kristen's mom, Denise, would later tell investigators that the last time she heard from Kristen was actually the night of the party that Kristen attended. It's unclear what time it was exactly, but Kristen tried calling Denise, but was unable to reach her. So she ends up leaving a voicemail saying that she had some very good news to share with her and didn't want to wait. But since she didn't reach her, Kristen said she would call her back that next day. Assuming that would have been on Saturday. Denise said that she assumed the good news was that her biology professor had found her missing exam. Apparently, she thought she was going to have to retake this big exam. And her mom thought she was calling her to tell her that her professor found the exam and she didn't have to retake it. But sadly, we'll never know if that was the good news she was calling about. Because Kristen was never able to speak to her mom or anyone else again. So on Saturday and Sunday, friends start actively trying to find Kristen, especially when it came to Sunday and no one had seen or heard from her. 
Kristen's roommate, Crystal Calvin, was the first to reach out to authorities after returning home that Monday, the 27th, and seeing Kristen's purse and other personal items in the room where she had last seen them that Friday. She then became more concerned when she asked around to see if anybody had seen or heard from her, and nobody had since that Friday. So, she calls the university police department. It's my understanding that she had to call them a couple of times before anyone would actually answer. But once she did, the university police reached out to Kristen's parents to see if she had come home over the weekend. And they were told no. So, this led campus police to suspect that Kristen simply was on some last-minute, unplanned vacation for the holiday. They said this was something that students did all the time, especially on holiday weekends like this one. However, Kristen's parents weren't buying that, obviously. So, Stan Smart, Kristen's father, immediately went to the Cal Poly campus the following day to look for his daughter. And it was on that Tuesday that Stan and Denise tried to file a missing persons report on Kristen. However, when they called the San Luis Obispo Police Department, they were told it was too early to file a missing persons report. And gosh, does that make my blood boil? (laughs) Because yes, back in the 90s, it was a thing that a person had to be missing for 48 hours before police would allow a missing persons report to be filed. But Kristen was last seen at 2 a.m. on Saturday, so that's 72 hours. But even if you take Saturday out of it, nobody heard from her all day Sunday or all day Monday. So for her parents to come in on Tuesday to file the report, that's over 48 hours. So I don't understand that logic. However, at the time, I know campus police believed she had gone on vacation unannounced, which was definitely not the case. But I'm guessing the sheriff's department maybe believed that story as well. So, their 48-hour clock probably didn't start until Tuesday. Again, I'm guessing. I don't know what their actual logic was there. And for some reason, the report wasn't officially filed until weeks later. And in that missing persons report, the sheriff's department claimed that Denise Smart told them that Kristen went on a camping trip. Where the hell did that even come from? Like, literally no one knows. (laughs) That was a complete and utter lie. I mean, y'all... I could strangle these people myself. I'm sure you're feeling the same way. But everyone believes they said this because they were trying to save a face from filing their report so late. Again, that doesn't warrant. I mean, she didn't go on a camping trip for weeks. Okay, come on. But like I said, this case was initially in the hands of the university police, not the local police department like it should have been. And those close to Kristen said that the campus police thought that Kristen was off having fun. And they literally ignored worried friends and family who said she was missing. Denise Smart is even quoted saying that she thought they treated this case like a lost bicycle, quote unquote. It was four full days after she went missing that campus police actually started an investigation. And the campus actually kept this to themselves and didn't involve police until four weeks later. I'm guessing that's when the official missing persons report was filed And after the campus police just kind of gave up on it. But again, this whole who got involved when and who did what when is just stupid and ridiculous and infuriating to say the least. But anyways, now campus police did give it a good shot, I have to say. The first thing they did was interview the three students that were last seen with Kristen. 
Then they actually conducted a dig at the landfill where the Cal Poly trash was dumped several days after Kristen disappeared. Nothing really came of that either. Um, It's unclear what all campus police actually did to locate Kristen, although they did seem to put effort into it originally. However, I just feel like this should have went straight to the police department, but we'll get into that part. So like I said, after four weeks, this case was finally handed over to the local police department. And they obviously started with the last known person to see Kristen alive and well. And that was 19-year-old Paul Flores. Now, who is Paul Flores? Let's get into that for a minute. So, Paul grew up and attended high school in Arroyo Grande, California, about 15 miles south of San Luis Obispo. And his parents owned two properties there in 1996. But Paul Flores himself was apparently a below-average student who, according to his parents, really had no friends in high school and hadn't had much luck in college either. Now, I'll say I don't know what his home life was like. I don't know if he had some like underlying issues or childhood trauma or if he was just like some one-off weirdo. Because in December 1995, another female student at Kyle Poly called the local police department when Paul climbed up onto her balcony and refused to leave. But he left before police arrived. And word around campus was Paul had a reputation among the female students as being a creeper. Quote unquote. <laughs> Chris Lambert, a podcaster that was actually credited to helping keep Kristen's story alive, learned during his podcast, Your Own Backyard, that another student had told police that he was given the nickname Chester the Molester. <laughs> Sorry, that makes me laugh. Because he was known for groping girls like a sick freak six weeks after this incident on the balcony he was caught speeding through a intersection and after being pulled over he blew a 0.13 when 0.08 was the legal limit he lost his license as a result and to add to his odd behavior a source told the la times that on the weekends he would quote sit in his room and drink beer get drunk and then go wander around the outskirts of campus looking for parties. And Tim Davis, one of the students that found Kristen in the yard that night, said that he helped throw the party that night, and he told investigators that he saw Paul on top of Kristen in the hallway upstairs. Now, he said he didn't know if Paul had accidentally knocked her down or it was on purpose, but he recalls seeing Paul on top of Kristen, and then the two were getting up and just walked away separately. And from what I can tell, this is the only time that anyone saw the two interact that night prior to him offering to help her back to her dorm. But needless to say, this guy had some issues, right? On top of his general weirdness, there were witnesses that came forward or police tracked down that gave pretty surprising statements in regards to their interaction with Paul shortly after the disappearance. One of which being what Paul's roommate told investigators. He said that after he returned to the campus after the holiday weekend, He asked Paul about Kristen, and Paul said that he walked her to a dorm and then walked home. However, Paul's roommate teased him a little bit, asking what he did with Kristen. And then Paul said, quote, she's home with my parents. Quite the bone-chilling statement, if you ask me. Then just two days after Kristen vanished, Paul Flores went to the Arroyo Grande Police Department because of an outstanding DUI warrant. 
and in his mugshot, you can faintly see a black eye. This clearly stood out to the officers investigating Kristen's case. And when the investigators brought Paul in for their own interview, they asked him what happened to his eye. Now, he originally says that it happened at a casual pickup game of basketball with some friends. However, that story changed a couple more times during the investigation. First, because a fellow player told investigators that Paul showed up with the black eye. And when confronted with that claim, he said he just woke up with it. Okay. (laughs) And in a later interview with police, Paul said it happened while doing repair work on a truck at his father's house. But he didn't want to, quote, sound stupid before. Well, now you just sound suspicious. Okay. Now, continuing with the investigation into Paul specifically... Like I said, his story changed a few times about the black eye, but it also changed a few times when it came to how he and Kristen parted ways. First, he said he walked to his dorm and let her go the rest of the way by herself. But in another interview, he said he walked her to her dorm and then went back to his. But then, when confronted by the San Luis Obispo police, he said he stopped at his dorm, let Kristen walk to hers, but that he watched her walk all the way to her dorm and made sure she got inside. However, that's the first time he's mentioned that at all. But as we already know, Paul's roommate had a little different story because, if you remember, he made the disturbing comment about Kristen being at home with his parents. So, let's circle back to that. Clearly, Paul's roommate took that very seriously and gave that statement to the police. Thank the Lord. And when he did, investigators also took that claim seriously, but... Before getting into that, police wanted to search both dorm rooms of Kristen and Paul. Not much came from the search in Kristen's dorm, but the search was obviously done in Paul's dorm room far too late, honestly. Mainly because campus police held this case for so long, the dorm rooms were not properly closed off or treated as potential crime scenes as they should have been. And the university had actually sanitized Paul's room prior to the police searching the dorm. Why they did this, who the freak knows. I don't know if this was standard protocol or what, but that being said, when searching Paul's room, they brought in cadaver dogs, and (laughs) y'all, the dogs did not disappoint. They had two dogs being brought in, but they were brought in at separate times. So the first dog comes in and he hits on three different spots in the room. And what a cadaver dog does, if you don't know specifically, is they are trained to identify or to detect the scent of decomposing human bodies or parts, including bone, blood, and tissue. And these dogs can identify residue scents that indicate a body was once in that location. So This dog basically marked on three spots where there was this type of scent found. So they bring in the second dog. And I'm assuming this is just to like double check the first dog's efforts. And sure enough, the second cadaver dog hits on this same exact three spots. So the first spot the dog hits on was on Paul's bed. The second spot was at his trash can. And the third spot was on his telephone. So, at this point, it's obvious police believed Paul Flores was responsible for the death of Kristen Smart. This was no longer a missing persons case, according to police. They came up with a scenario that Paul brought Kristen back to his dorm room that night, and he tried to make sexual advances towards her. 
and she tried to fight him off, hence the black eye he had in the interview. And at this point, police believe the two struggled, and it ultimately resulted in Kristen's death. And after that, they believe Paul took Kristen to his parents' house to dispose of the body, again, based on a statement he made to his roommate. So, on July 15, 1996, the home of Ruben and Susan Flores was searched by the San Luis Obispo Sheriff's Department for the first time. Now, let me back up and drop a little bombshell on you real quick. So, two days after Kristen goes missing, the Flores family pours a fresh slab of concrete in their backyard. Yep. You heard that right. (laughs) Now, when police go to search this family's home, the warrant they got did not allow them to dig up the backyard, which doesn't fully make sense to me because the overwhelming theory here is that Kristen's body was taken to this home. And with that brand new concrete slab being poured, that would have been the one thing I would have wanted to do as an investigator is to have that concrete ripped up. But anyways, during this initial search, not much was found except for a few newspaper clippings about the Kristen Smart disappearance. Really weird, but not evidence for murder. Now, at the time of Kristen's disappearance, the Flores family actually owned two properties, one of which being the family home that Paul's parents lived in, and the other was used as a rental property. Both properties were searched multiple times. And about a month after Kristen's disappearance, the rental property was rented to tenants who later told the California Register that they found an earring that matched a pair they saw in a picture of Kristen Smart. And when that claim was investigated, those earrings in that picture were missing from Kristen's jewelry collection, indicating she was wearing those earrings the night she went missing. And another claim these tenants made was that they could hear a beeping noise, kind of like a watch alarm, at the same time every morning from somewhere in the yard, y'all. In the yard. I'm sorry. Kristen's watch or not, that is creepy. Okay? I would be looking into these people that I'm renting from. But like I said, these two properties were searched a few different times and no concrete evidence turned up at either location, despite the rather creepy findings and statements made by renters. Five months after Kristen disappeared, Paul Flores was brought before a grand jury, but no charges were filed. Now, Paul was brought before a grand jury to determine if there was a case against him because basically to see if this case could be sent to trial. However, like I said, no charges were filed against Paul. Therefore, he was a free man. A few weeks after that, Kristen's parents hired attorney James Murphy, who then filed a wrongful death lawsuit against Paul Flores. However, in 1997, when he had to give his deposition in the lawsuit, he literally said nothing. He stated his name, and that was about it. (laughs) With every other question, he pleaded the Fifth Amendment, which, to those that don't know, is the Fifth Amendment right to remain silent. And that means they do not have to answer the question. He can just say, I plead the Fifth. So he pleaded the Fifth to 27 questions. And after that, the family didn't have much of an option there, and the lawsuit was dropped. But They kept their own files on the case, and they kept tabs on Paul, sending members of his family photos of Kristen with pleas to get them to talk. 
all those packages were returned after being opened. In 1998, Denise made a statement to the examiner that, quote, we're not after Paul Flores. We only want our daughter back. Denise and Stan Smart continued their own search for Kristen after police activity started to dwindle down. They gave interviews in order to keep her name and face in the news. They contacted the FBI and state lawmakers. And in 1997, the California legislature passed the Kristen Smart Campus Safety Act, which requires campus police to promptly report missing students to local law enforcement and for entities to formally work out which agency will take the lead in the case of a violent crime. Two years after his daughter went missing, Stan Smart continued going to Cal Poly about once a month to search for Kristen or traces of her himself. Sadly, in 2002, Kristen Denise Smart was formally declared dead. But in 2006, Sergeant Brian Haskell of the San Luis Obispo Sheriff's Department said that Paul Flores was still a, quote, active suspect and that the investigation was open and active, which was a very good sign. But it would take another 15 years before the family and the world would receive some answers. Finally, in February 2020, authorities obtained four search warrants for Paul Flores. Two were served in San Luis Obispo, one was served in Los Angeles, California, and the fourth was served in the state of Washington. Not exactly sure what the warrants were for. Um, That was not ever made clear to the public, but officials said they were, quote, for very specific items. In April 2020, an additional search warrant was granted for Paul's home, and it was during this search that investigators claimed to have found evidence physically linking Paul Flores to Kristen's murder. And finally, in March 2021, another search warrant was granted for Ruben Flores' home. That particular search had cadaver dogs and radar technology to search the home. And authorities found further evidence linking Paul and Ruben Flores to the murder of Kristen Smart. And because of this search, on April 13, 2021, the San Luis Obispo Superior Court judge signed two arrest warrants and two search warrants for both Paul and his father, Ruben Flores. On that same day, Paul was arrested and faces charges of murder. And his father, Ruben, was also arrested and faces charges of accessory to murder. Police said that Paul murdered Kristen during an attempted rape and Reuben helped his son hide the body. On April 15th, Paul and Reuben made their first appearance in court, and it was suspected that they would enter a plea deal, but neither of which did, which is pretty surprising in my opinion. And after the arrests were made, Kristen's family filed lawsuits against both the Flores men, filing civil lawsuits for inflicting emotional distress over the years since Kristen's death. Now, guys, that is where this case stands at this point in time. I know I mentioned the podcaster Chris Lambert earlier in the episode, but I want to point out that police recognized Chris Lambert as the one who brought key witnesses forward, and he was credited as keeping this case alive and ultimately leading to the arrest of Paul and Ruben Flores. He did an eight-part podcast on this case called Your Own Backyard, back in 2019, I believe. I highly recommend checking that out, guys. I definitely wish I would have, but honestly, I wanted to dive into this case 
on my own before listening to someone else's version, someone else telling the story, but I'll definitely be checking that out. I'm always fascinated by people that can just fully dive in and do these episodes week after week about one case. I just, I feel like that is a rabbit hole that I I can't prepare myself mentally to get into, but I would love to do that one day, but we'll see. Sheriff Ian Parkinson said, it's been a puzzle and it's a very slow process to find each of those little pieces, but some of that information came to light through this podcast, which is crazy. I have a feeling with podcasts becoming such a big thing and armchair detectives like Chris Lambert and Payne Lindsay of the Up and Vanish podcast, who both have ultimately helped solve these cold cases, I think we'll be seeing more cold cases solved because of people like this. I personally don't have the guts, like I said a minute ago, to take such a deep dive into one specific case. Maybe one day I like the idea of diving into one case, especially a cold case where there's so much information It really just kind of needs somebody to just put the pieces together, like that sheriff mentioned. I mean, what do you guys think? I think I'd have to, it'd have to be a totally different podcast, right? It'd have to be a separate thing on its own because I enjoy doing different cases each week over here on The Killer Kind. But what are your thoughts? You know, not that I think I'm going to be a Payne Lindsay or a Chris Lambert, but you never know. Things could happen. (laughs) So with that being said, that is it for today's episode episode. I really hope you enjoyed it. Um, Like I said earlier, we're coming up on our one year anniversary and I've got an exciting announcement I can't wait to share. June 22nd will be the one year mark from when I put out the first episode ever here on the podcast. It's been so much fun creating this guys. I didn't expect to have any listeners to be honest. Maybe a few family members that said they would listen. But I definitely didn't expect the support I've gotten over the past year. And this has been bigger than I could have ever imagined. And if this is as big as it ever gets, I am so eternally grateful for that. And I'm in shock. (laughs) I can't even tell you. So thank you guys so much. In two weeks, I'll be back with another episode. And I will have that exciting announcement then. And in the meantime, if you have any feedback you want to share about the podcast, please share it however you can. You can leave a review however, wherever you're listening. You can head over to the podcast Instagram, which is just killer.kind.pod, and send me a direct message there or leave a comment on today's post, however you want to. I'd love to get your feedback on today's case, or really podcast in general, honestly. And please be nice. <laughs> I am glad to take constructive criticism, trust me, but I've got my first like couple bad reviews and it really brought me down. Honestly, I've read them like I read the first one like right after the last episode a few weeks ago and then I read the other one the other day and and I was so upset about it at first, but then I went to review like the reviews of my favorite podcast to see if they have any bad reviews because I love other podcasts and I never really look at, look at their reviews. I don't know if y'all do, but I went to the ones that I love, y'all, and people are so mean, so mean. So I guess I'm in good company, right? Once people start listening to the podcast, the more people listen to it, the more negative, mean people they're going to be. So I accept that. I welcome that. (laughs) Not really. (laughs) Please be nice. But anyway, so please leave a nice review or just put a little star rating. You don't even have to say anything. That would be nice too. (laughs) But anyways, guys, I hope you have a great couple weeks. I'll be back here 
on the 21st. And until then, stay safe out there, guys. See you later. Bye.